Good morning. Welcome to Reverence Bible Church. Um, this morning we are going to be uh, beginning a three-part series in Ephesians one, uh, Ephesians four. I'm sorry, one through sixteen, and we're just going to be looking at the first six verses of Ephesians four. So if you would open your Bibles there and follow along with me. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Would you pray with me? I'm going to bounce around a little bit. Uh, If you want to follow along into different passages that I go to, you can, or you can just listen to me read. I don't normally bounce around like this, so I'm warning you ahead of time. Um, But with that in mind, Jesus in in John 13 was a matter of hours from the cross. And as his hour had drawn near, he was with his disciples and, and he was exhorting them with this truth. In John 13, he He called out to them and and he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you would love one another as I have loved you, that you also would love one another. He says, I'm giving you a new command, not in the command to love, but specifically in the way that you should love, following my model of sacrificial love. And then he goes on, he says, by this, all will know that you are my disciples. If you have love, this type of love for one another. Jesus is talking here about a unifying, supernatural love that he is calling his followers to. And he goes on later on in John 17 in his high priestly prayer for the church, for us here this morning. And he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So us in this room who have placed our faith in Jesus. He says that they all may be one. They may be unified as you Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one with us for this reason, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, so that the world would believe. He says, I want you to follow this command, love each other in the way that I have loved you. And as you do, you will be unified in me. And as that, as that happens before the world around you, they will see me and believe in me. This is a prayer that Christ has prayed for the church. 
And Paul would grab onto this prayer and these thoughts, and he would run with them as he wrote to the church in Rome. In the book of of Romans, he was writing to this church that was made up of a lot of different people, a lot of different cultures. You have Jews and Gentiles, different socioeconomic backgrounds, and, and there would be strife in the church, as there should be. There's sin in the church, so there's going to be strife in the church, and there's going to be differences in the church. And as he wrote this letter to the church at Rome, he tried to ground them in the gospel. So the, a very specific thing would be accomplished. He wanted them to embrace the gospel so that they, like following Jesus' call, so that they would proclaim the gospel with one voice. He says in Romans 15, as he's closing his letter at verse 5, he says, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant to you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. Again, why? So that you may with one mind and with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a powerful call. He's he's saying be grounded in the gospel so that you would be unified in the love of Christ so that we with one voice would glorify our God and Father to the world around us. Be unified so that people would see and worship me. This is, this is critical. You think about this, the people around us, make no doubt about this, they need to hear the gospel. They need to hear about, about Christ's Love that would go to the extent that he would condescend from heaven and walk on this earth and, and die on a cross and take our death and sin upon himself. And through his death and through our faith in him, he would, we would receive his life in righteousness in exchange. We would find hope and forgiveness. We would find unity with Him and with one another through all that He has accomplished upon his, through His death and resurrection. They need to hear that message. But there's something else we know. Not only do they, they need to hear the message, they long to see the message played out in us. They need to hear it with their ears, but they need to see it with their eyes. They long to see it with their eyes. People, when they, when they hear about Jesus' love and they see it in the Christian's life, they, they, they want to see something supernatural. They want to see something that goes above, above, above what they have seen in the world around them, above what they see when they look in a mirror. They don't want to see a social club. They don't want to enter into a church on Sunday morning and just see a bunch of people gather around about, you know, similar likes. We live in a similar area and we all kind of have similar houses and we live similar lives and we do similar things. And that, they can do that anywhere. They want to see something more. They want to see a supernatural love that has come from above. And Paul in Ephesians 4 as he, trans- as he transitions from the gospel knowledge that he's been proclaiming in the first three chapters of Ephesians, 
He's going to go into gospel living. And he takes up that banner as he moves forward. That we would be unified through sacrificial love to the point that we would proclaim the glories of Christ to the world around us. This is why he says what he says in Ephesians as he is calling the church. Sorry, I lost my page there. You might have thought that I had this all memorized, but I don't. Uh, There it is. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's pleading with us as Christians here. He's, he's, he's giving this, us this, this wonderful analogy of calling us to watch the way we walk in our lives. And I love the analogy because the way we walk, it does say something about ourselves. Uh, even physically, the way we walk. I, I can think of my own kids, you know, they'll, they'll, as they've been growing up, they'll fall asleep in different places in the house or in the car, and we got to wake them up, and, and we got to get them up into their rooms, and, and they get into that place of, of sleepiness, and they, and they start walking. And, and as they do, the way they walk actually does say something about their personalities, uh, Aubrey's already knowing where I'm going with this because I just shared this, I think, with Alex the other day. But she, you know, Aubrey has a way that she walks. When when she's tired, she kind of she kind of stumbles around like she's Captain Jack Sparrow, and and she just kind of she just kind of floats her way to bed, and 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 it says something about her personality. It's it's kind of how she goes. She she kind of bumps into things and makes her way through, and and it's she's fun to watch and fun to be around, and and I think of Caitlin and how we wake her up and she's sitting to bed and she's different. You know, Aubrey is just kind of you know, trying to make her way through, and Caitlin is just like focused. You wake her up, and it's hard to get her going, but once you get her going, she's, she's pounding through the floor, and everybody in our house knows this. She's pounding on the floor, and she's like, I'm getting to bed, and she's focused, and I'm going to get up that ladder, and I'm going to get in my bed, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to sleep, because that's, that's the way she is. Christiana, our 10-year-old, she's always been like this. You wake her up and, and she just kind of floats as she walks to bed because she's, like, she's just a little butterfly. And, and, and that's, that's just kind of, that's, that's her personality. Uh, Nolan, he won't walk at all. You have to carry him to bed and that's what he's like. <laughs> and and these, these aspects about how we walk, it does say something about us. Me, myself, you know, I get made fun of all the time. I, my body is just racked with injuries, so I have this old man type of walk about me. I even see myself, like, I'll walk down the stairs and I'll get to the bottom step and I'm like, oh, and I feel old and I, and I walk like I'm old because that, I'm getting older. That's, that's the way it is. And, and how we walk, it, it kind of says something about who we are. And, and Paul here is saying, I want you to walk in a certain way. He says this all throughout his letter. In Ephesians 2, he says, And he, God, made you alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins, 
in which you once walked according to the power, uh, I'm sorry, according to the course of this world. You once walked in one way, but I don't want you to walk that way. I want you to walk in accordance to the, your great call. He says in verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, what? So that we should walk in them. I want you to walk in accordance to your great calling. He says this all throughout his letter. He wants us to live lives together, arm in arm, moving forward in a very specific way. So that when the world sees you walk, they see me. So that when the world sees you interact with one another, they see my gospel being played out because it's not enough for them just to hear it. They need and they want and they long to see it. This is critical for us to know. It's critical for Paul as he's calling us to live in a certain way. So he says, he urges them, I beseech you, brethren, to walk worthy of your calling with which you have been called. Let me first say that what this does not mean is that we should try to deserve our place in favor with God. You walk this way because some people think, because I'm going to prove to God that he saved the right guy. Like, I, he, you, you saved me, but you saved a good guy who does good things, and let me show it to the world how good I am. It's not what he's saying at all. What he means is that we should recognize how much our place in God's favor deserves from us, that we are debtors to the life that Christ has bestowed upon us, Paul writes in Romans. That we should focus here not on our worth, but the worthiness of our calling. Again, you see this throughout the first three chapters. The importance that Paul is placing upon our calling. We see in verse 4 of chapter 1 that, that God chose us for himself before creation. In verse 5, Paul said that God predestined us to be his children. He has accepted us. He has made us heirs of the Father. And he has done that for people who do not deserve it. Why? Because he goes on in verse 7 and he talks about how Jesus had to die and lay down his life and his blood had to be poured out to cover our sins, to forgive us of our sins. This is our calling. He goes on in verse 13 and he says that not only has he chosen us, not only has he forgiven us, but also through the Holy Spirit he has sealed us so that we may preserve. Why? Because apart from his work, we would make a shipwreck of our faith. We need him every moment of every day. And this is a great calling. It should never be minimized. Again, in, verse, in chapter 2, he talks about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with Christ. Why? Because of his great mercy. Not because we are so great. And then he promises that for all of the ages to come, he's just going to be pouring out his blessings upon us from age to age to age. 
He's going to lavish his grace upon us because this is what he does. And if that weren't enough, we see in chapter 3, verse 10, that God has given his church, he's given you and I a bunch of broken sinners. He's given us the mission to display his wisdom, not just to the world around us, but even to the principalities, even to the angels, the powers, the unseen powers in the heavenly places. And why does he do this? He sums it all up because we are destined and appointed to live to the praise of his glorious grace. We are. We are. And as we get to know each other, and some of us know each other really well, that that seems even more shocking when we see our own shortcomings and our own frailties and how we fall short of God's glory over and over again. And, And we're just reminded, this is us. He's created us to display His glory. What a great and gracious God. What a great and gracious calling He has given us that each one of us who are called to be children of the Most High God carries this calling every day. And this is what the world longs to see. They long to see something so far beyond themselves. You know, they, we all sit there and, and we stare at the stars and we think about the immensity of the universe and we're blown away by it. We're put into a place of awe of it. Why do we think like that? Because God placed it in our hearts to think like that. We want to be a part of something that's so much bigger than ourselves. It's why we root for sports teams. That's why we gather together in different communities in our lives. We want to be part of something bigger than us. The world longs to see something greater than themselves. This is our calling. And with this calling comes great responsibilities for us to walk worthy of that calling. And as we do, we need to focus on him. Karl Barth summarizes this by saying, royal princes are treated by by their educators not with a stick, not pounding them back into place. They're treated by their educators with an appeal to their rank and standing of who they are, what they've been born into. And this is exactly how Paul is appealing to us here in 4.1. Yet his petition is not a call to aristocratic qualities of imperious resolve. We're not, we're not called to be these snooty, uppity people who have everything under control. And, and I've got this. And I know what I'm doing. Looking down at the world around us like somehow we are superior in some way. No. The call is a call to walk worthy of the one who has called us and how he has called us not look at how awesome i am look at how awesome he is this is our call it's a call to corporate humility to gentleness to patience to forbearing in love that exemplifies the god who has called us and to the christ who has bought us with his very life And it is this call that should shape every decision that we make. How you talk to the person next to you. How you love those around you. 
It should mark us. And my question this morning is, how are we doing with us with this? Honestly, I, I struggle with these things, as I'm sure every person in this room does. In the littlest ways, the most insignificant ways. I've, I've spent time at the DMV just like you. And don't think that I'm not above what you're thinking also. I'm standing there going, don't you people have something better to do? Like, I have stuff to do. Like, I'm, I'm a pastor. I've got important things to do in my life. Like, move out of the way. Let me get through these lines. And I, I, I think of, there's this book that I read. I'm just drawing a blank on it. Uh, Counsel from the Cross. If you haven't read it, it's a great book. And it gives this great example of, that just really cuts to the heart for most of us as we, we sit in a shopping line. And, and we've got somebody, someplace to get to, and, and the person in front of us, there's just one person, they've only bought like, like six things. And, and you're just, you're right there, and you're ready to get through and buy your two things and get on with it. And what do they do? They, they whip out a checkbook. And you're looking at him and you're like, a checkbook? Are you kidding me? And why do you have a coupon for every single thing that you're buying? I'll, here, take the money. I'll make up the difference. Just move. I have a life that I need to get to. And we get frustrated. And we look down upon others and we lift ourselves up and God is calling us to something so much more and he's asking us, who are you reflecting in those times? Who are you reflecting? Who do you look like? Do you look like me? Is the position of your heart reflecting me? I'm here to tell you today, that, and Paul is here to tell you in this letter, and most importantly, God is here in our hearts entreating us, begging us, saying, my child, don't be fooled by the treacherous lies of sin. You are sons and daughters of the king. A king who laid down his life for you with patience and humility and forbearance. Walk worthy of that calling. Stop reflecting the world and sin and start reflecting me. As we look at these next two verses, I see two striking points. The first one in verse 3, Paul is teaching us one way to live our life worthy of or to bring honor to our calling. In verse 3, <clears throat> he says, I endeav uh, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in a bond of peace. To keep unity together. And how do we maintain that spiritual unity? How do we walk and hold on to each other closely as, as the closer we get, the more we hurt each other because the more our sin becomes prickly and it hurts? How do we keep moving in this direction? Well, it's not by sentimental and superficial unity. It's not what, what those outside of the church would presuppose of us that we just sit around and we hold on to each other and, and we sing songs like, you know, I love you. You love me. We're a happy family. And we just, we just ignore everything and we're good. It's good. Everything is good. We're all just smile. We have this fake veneer and, and everything is just great with us. Don't look behind the veil. 
Just accept our word for it. That is not the type of unity that Christ is calling us to. That's not what the world wants to see. We're talking about a biblical, spiritual unity that is empowered by a holy, omnipotent God. The type of unity, this type of unity is something far beyond a shallow world that a shallow world can grasp. It's a supernatural unity. It is a work through Jesus Christ alone, and it brings glory to God. It's a unity that is worthy of our great calling. He goes on and he says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called into one hope of your calling, which is what we've been talking about. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. This is a super natural unity, a radical unity, that when we have it, the world sees God. When we have this unity together, the world sees God. And again, I'm not, not making these things up. Hopefully I don't make up anything up here. But I'm not making these things up. We see them in 1 John 4. The apostle writes there, and he says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that God has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And listen where he goes with this. He says, No one has seen God at any time. No one. But if we love one another, God abides, He resides, He lives in us, and His love has been perfected in us. By this, He says, we know that we abide in Him and He is in us because He has given us His Holy Spirit. And we have seen and testify, we bear witness that the Father has sent the Son as a Savior of the world. He says, nobody has seen God with their eyes. But when you love in the way that he loves, they can see you. So love like him and testify of him. This may be the only time they get to see me clearly is when my love is radiating through you, when you are bound together through the Holy Spirit and in the peace that I provide and in the peace that I have purchased. Let them see me through you. This is what I believe Paul is calling us to. This is the type of supernatural unity. And as you look back through the text, as we work backwards through it, we see again in verse 2 how to maintain this unity. And it comes in two stages of Christ-likeness. The first stage leads us to humility or lowliness and gentleness. We see that again in verse 2. It says, with all lowliness and gentleness. Walk worthy of your calling. Be unified together in humility. The knowledge of our high calling, Paul is insinuating, should fill our lives with humility. 
It should make us see ourselves for who we are and to see Him for who He is and respond accordingly with humility, with lowliness, with gentleness. So we, we seek to see Christ so that we can know ourselves and have it take effect. In the same way that, like I talked earlier about the stars, we don't look at the stars and think, wow, look at how awesome I am. I'm so big and significant. We don't take our families to the edge of the Grand Canyon and and have them look out over it and be like, look at how important and how huge and significant you are. No, it, it reminds us of who we are, how small we are. And so that is how we should respond. As Christians, we we can never sit and see the greatness and the beauty and the power of our God and then turn and see ourselves as anything more than what we truly are. Feeble subjects before a great and mighty king. In fact, anything other than that, any response other than that, is contradictory to the gospel itself. If you're walking around with lofty opinions of yourself, you really don't know Christ the way that you should. This is what we see throughout Scripture. This is where we should go moment by moment, knowing that we are subjects of the King. Christians should regard our own knowledge as small and lowly because we have seen the omniscience the omniscience of God. We should regard our own strength as small and lowly because we have seen an omnipotent God. We should regard our own righteousness And how important is this for us as believers? We should regard even the best things we do as small and lowly because of how holy God is. There's no shadow of change. There's no darkness in Him in any way. We would have no righteousness apart from Him. Even the best things we do would be considered as filthy rags before Him apart from from His grace. And in the end, since the Christian is measured by God and not man, the way which he walks through life should not be puffed up with any type of false superiority that we have over other fallen human beings. We should have something far different about us, an air about us that is far different. John Piper puts it this way. He says, Christian humility makes a person feel awkward when receiving praise. It makes a person recoil from the contemporary counsel of self-assertiveness and self-esteem and self-confidence. Now what he's not saying is that you should have no confidence at all. He goes on and he says, the great delight of the lowly Christian is to enjoy the free, unmerited mercy of God. All his longings are satisfied in God. God is the one he esteems. God is is his confidence. I'll say it again. All his longings are satisfied in God because God is the one he esteems. God is his confidence. That is what the world longs to see. That our confidence is not founded in ourselves. Our confidence is founded in a great and awesome God. May we embrace these truths. May we take these steps in walking 
As the Holy Spirit empowers us to do it with lowliness, with humility, with gentleness with those around us. The second step that we should have is patience. If you look at the flow of the text, he says that, uh, um, that we should walk worthy of our calling with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, with patience for one another. And, and having, being humble and gentle is our, it's a prerequisite for patience. Because proud and arrogant people are just not patient. People who are full of themselves, they're not patient. That's not how they naturally walk. We see that all over the place. It's so weird where our culture has turned. Five, seven years ago, the word diva, you hear that. And, and if you're old enough, everybody would think, oh, diva, that's a negative thing. But nowadays, it's like, oh, you're a diva. That's like somehow a good thing. You're full of yourself. Oh, way to go. And, and people respond in that, but there's no, there's, there's no patience with anybody. I, you, you hear stories, and I just read this yesterday of uh, Orlando Bloom. Um, I know he was in Pirates of the Caribbean, but there's this weird story of him being in New York, and he rode his motorcycle up on a curb, and he didn't have a shirt on, and he parked sideways so nobody can even get around his bike, and he walked into the store, and he just started yelling out for somebody to help him. And then as he shopped and gathered up all of his clothes, he looked at the guy who was checking him out and he said, so am I getting the Orlando Bloom discount for me wearing your clothes? In other words, why don't you just give me the clothes for free because I'm famous. This is, there's, there's no humility, so therefore there's no patience. That's what the world looks like. But the world is looking for something more. They're looking for humility. They're looking for gentleness. They're looking for a supernatural patience that exalts others above ourselves the way that Christ serves us. This is what they want. You think about humble people. You think about gentle people. They are naturally patient. They are less likely to feel slighted when people don't acknowledge all of the wonderful things that they're doing, when people don't treat them like superstars, humble people aren't hurt by that. They understand who they are. They understand who their God is. They long for Him to be exalted above themselves. And this is what Paul is after. He's after humility in light of the gospel. He's after gentleness in light of the gospel. He's after patience in light of the gospel. And then I love where he goes with this. He says, bearing with one another in love. Endeavor for unity. Bearing with one another in love. And the reason I love that is because it frees me from any type of falseness in who I am and who you are. Nobody's perfect in this room. Nobody's perfect. We have to bear with one another in love because we are just going to hurt each other the closer we get. And that's why Paul is encouraging us to live like this. We have no hypocritical need to think that anybody is above us, below us. We just can bear with one another and endure one another. Because perfect people don't need to be endured. But sinners do. And we re- when we recognize that about ourselves and those around us, we can respond with the gospel. And again, 
This is the type of Christ-like love that the world is looking for. So how does this play out in our lives? How does this look? What does this look like day in and day out? How do we keep on caring for people who are not like us or hurt us? How do we maintain this unity of spirit instead of becoming divisive and divided in our hearts? How do we with one voice proclaim the gospel and glorify our God and Father? Paul answers this. Let me say this in two ways as I close. First, in these words, I want us to remember what he's not saying. And what he's not saying is, you handle this by ignoring sin. Because he's not saying that. You don't handle this by covering your eyes. Being like, no, we're all good. I don't see anything. We don't handle this by taking our glasses and pretend like these are rose-colored right now and throwing them on and being like, no, everything's cool. You're good. We're all good. No problems whatsoever. That's not how we get gospel unity. We bear with one another in love. We understand who we are, who I am and who you are. We understand our shortcomings and we seek to sanctify one another as we point each other to Christ. We don't have to ignore the sin. We can actually love each other by reminding ourselves that, hey, I'm falling short and you're falling short and and sometimes I'm falling short in these very specific ways. Can you help me? Can you love me through this? That's what we want from our families, don't it? Isn't it? We want families who are honest with one another, but not degrading because of the gospel, because of who Jesus is and because what he has done. The man who walks humbly is actively conscious of the immensity of his debt toward God, his debt towards others for forgiveness, and seeks to love them in the way that Christ has loved us. For this reason, we should be keenly aware of God's amazing grace that has saved a wretch like us and walk humbly with each other, not retaliate, but overcome evil with good and let people see Jesus in us. And in that, we will have unity. The world will stand on the outside and see something new, supernatural and be drawn into who Jesus is wanting to know him better. And may we as a church do that with one voice, proclaiming his gospel and his greatness to the end. Let's pray that we would. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you laid down everything all the glories and all the honor that the uncreated creator of all things, the King of kings and Lord of lords would have naturally. You laid it all down so that broken sinners like us can walk closely with you. Lord, help us to walk worthy of that calling. Help us to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to be held together through your spirit in a bond of unity and peace. And may this happen so that your name would be exalted above all names. Not for people to see us, but for people to see you. Do it for your glory. Do it for our good. 
We thank you, Lord, and we pray this all in Jesus' holy name. Amen.